Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Willy Le Don Verta, a professor of economic sociology and digital social research at the Oxford Internet Institute in the University of Oxford. His research examines how digital technologies are used to reshape the organizations of economic activities in society. In this episode of Bridging the Gaps, we are going to discuss his new book, Cloud Empires, how digital platforms are overtaking the state and how we can regain control. Willie, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much, Wasim, and great to chat with you today. In the earlier chapters of the book, you discussed the lawless and chaotic days of the early internet. Uh, this was well before Amazon and eBay were on the scene. Even in those early days, we see the emergence of themes to resist uh, outside influence, uh, to resist uh, government regulations in favor of giving its users more control and liberty. Talk to us about the early days of Usenet and how it tried to empower its users. Sure. So Usenet was what is today sometimes called the first social networking service. So this is, yeah, it was, it was um, started essentially in the late 70s, early 80s. And so this is um, uh, 25, 26 years before Facebook was even launched. We already had something like a social networking service. And it was, it consisted of groups and as a user, you could join those groups and then you could post messages and read other people's messages and reply to those messages. And um, what made it very different from today's social networking services was that it was not owned by any single company. So it was a so-called federated network of servers, the, the, the platform consisted of a federated network of servers that communicated using standard protocols. And as a user, you could connect to any one of those servers um, and access the same network and the same messages through it. And so there wasn't any single company or organization that was a gatekeeper uh, in the system. And those serve most of the servers originally, well, all of the servers originally belonged to universities. Um, universities were the original internet service providers. And then gradually some companies, um, commercial internet service providers also began to provide access to Usenet. But basically it was this sort of a, a network, a federated network with no gatekeeper, no single company in charge. And that environment um, sort of inspired people to uh, develop these sort of cyber libertarian ideologies where they liked to, the, you know, there was, there was great conversations going on in there uh, with people from around the world whilst the internet spread increasingly from around the world originally initially only from the us but gradually from other places in the world as well and there was this real feeling that 
the Usenet was sort of bringing people together across national boundaries. And these ideologies began to develop in which, which people believed that um, perhaps we could and should be independent uh, of nation states, the sort of cyber libertarianism or cyber utopianism. But what exactly were they doing at uh, the Usenet? Were they just chatting, just sharing ideas? Or there were some uh, business engagements, some buying and selling? What right. exactly was happening there? Right. So there, there, were, there were all kinds of activities. Like, you know, if you go on Facebook today, there's all kinds of activities going on. The same applied to the Usenet. But one of the more active sections was called the Usenet Marketplace. And it was very much like eBay in that it was um, a, a set of groups in which you could post uh, if you wanted to offer something for sale. And there were many different categories. You could you'd post in a category if you wanted to offer some computer hard for, hardware for sale. There were different categories for different types of hardware or books or uh, uh, film. Somebody sold a mot a motorcycles and um, a boat uh, said to have been traded there. Uh, and, you know, anything, all kinds of uh, uh, weird and wonderful things that you might find on, Wiki, uh, on, on eBay today were bought and sold on the Usenet marketplace. So it was quite a quite an interesting uh, place. Um, and what made it really quite special was that because there was no gatekeeper, there was no eBay, that's where it differed from eBay, there was no company to police that marketplace. How did the buyers and sellers basically ensure that the other party would uphold their end of the deal, right? So if you agree, for instance, I, I bought something in the mid nineties, first time I bought something online, I bought a game directly from um, some guy in Portland, US. I was in Finland, this guy was in Portland, US. Some guy I'd met online. I sent him a check for $50, something like $50. And he could have just kept that $50 and there's nothing I could have done about it, right? And so how could I be assured that he would actually live up to his promise? This is just a pseudonymous internet person I met, met in a Usenet group. And uh, vice versa, for a seller to send the goods they, you know, how could they trust me to actually pay? And how could they try? I said that the check is in the mail. Can they trust that? It's going to take some time for the check to arrive. Will they take my word for it? And usually, you know, this is what in, in, in economic sociology is sometimes called the problem of exchange. And this problem of exchange prevents market exchange from taking place, from emerging in many settings. And uh, the fact that in, in a normal, you know, in, 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 
usually in, in mo contemporary modern markets, marketplaces, the states, the government essentially solves this problem of exchange. Because if you agree to a contract of sale with somebody, then, and, and you fail to you uphold your end of the bargain, then that person can in principle take you to court and the court can compel you to go through with your promise. Now in practice, of course, we don't use this very much because it's the transaction cost is very high. It's a lot of trouble. But ultimately that is what underpins um, a lot of economic activity in a modern economy, the state's ability to coercively enforce contracts. But in the Usenet marketplace, we didn't have this because as mentioned, it was a sort of transnational marketplace that um, the participants felt transcended national jurisdictions and participants were often pseudonymous. You wouldn't know who they were anyway. And so, and yet somehow trades did happen there. So how is that possible? How did they overcome the problem of exchange? And the answer is that because in the early internet, um, these communities, people knew each other, uh, people spent uh, a lot of time with each other in these groups, uh, they began to trust each other. And they, they, they essentially, there were unwritten uh, social norms that emerged to underpin trade. Um, reciprocity. If you uh, treat others uh, as you would have them treat you, uh, if you fail to deliver on a promise, then next time the other party will fail to deliver on their promise too, and vice versa. If you deliver on your promises, prove yourself to be a trustworthy person, they will treat you likewise, and you stand to benefit from that by having lots of uh, beneficial trades in the future. You can get away with scamming them once, but then after you've done that, they will never deal with you again. And more broadly, also the rest of the community will hear, will hear about it, and your reputation will be ruined, and you won't be able to do business in that community anymore. So this way, informal social norms were able to underpin exchange and overcome the problem of exchange in the Usenet marketplace early on. The systems that emerged, the platforms that emerged, such as Amazon and eBay, do you see them as the evolution of Usenet or do you think that Usenet was something that happened and then it was dead and then from scratch, uh, these platforms emerged as new ideas. How do you see the emergence of these platforms? Mm. Well, yeah, so today, obviously, the internet is organized quite differently. Most service, most mainstream services that we use today, eBay and Amazon for e-commerce and for social networking, things like Facebook and Twitter, they're not federated networks of servers, right? They are centralized uh, services owned by a single company. And um, increasingly, we've started to realize that th there are problems associated with this. That company that owns that service has a lot of power now 
Mm. When hundreds of millions of people use the same platform, they get to decide what is permitted and what is not. And so a lot of people have gotten sort of nostalgic for the old internet uh, where systems were federated and there were no gatekeepers. And so Usenet is a bit like, in some ways, uh, today Mastodon, which is a, which is a, a, a sort of federated, so modern federated social networking service where some people moved after Mr. Elon Musk bought Twitter. Um, a lot of people moved to Mastodon or at least gave Mastodon a try. Mm. And Mastodon is some ways sort of trying to, to replicate the same fundamental architecture that Usenet had. And, um, and so in the same way, some people also think, you know, for instead of eBay and Amazon, which uh, especially Amazon, well, they both uh, extract quite high fees from their sellers now. So couldn't we have something like Usenet Marketplace again? And, uh, you know, my answer to that is I'm, I'm very uh, sympathetic to the idea. And I'm, you know, I'm also nostalgic for the old internet. I was, I got on the internet in the early 90s and I, you know, and I really kind of bought into that idea of uh, that it's, it's this transcends uh, nationalities and brings humanity together. And there was a lot of kind of good in that thinking. And I, some, in some ways I feel, and I think a lot of people feel that this promise of the internet has now been be betrayed because we are um, compartmentalized into into services owned by uh, gatekeeping large american gatekeeper companies um but so i'm very sympathetic to this idea but in practice however you know in my research in cloud empires um i discovered and i show it in the book that the usenet marketplace disintegrated on its own even before ebay and amazon uh, really took off. We will uh, come back to this uh, idea of uh, these uh, cloud empires and the power they have. But I just want to uh, touch upon a slightly different topic. And you, you sure. cover that in, in, in the book. You talk about Stoshi Nakamoto and you talk about uh, the emergence of Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin is a recent development. However, it is very interesting to see that how in the book you discuss the emergence of Bitcoin in the context of a number of historic parallels. Uh, you make comparisons with medieval economy. Uh, you also give reference to the Athenian uh, peasant revolt. Why, in your view, historic contexts are important when we try to understand the emergence of uh, Bitcoin? Thank you for asking that. I think this is quite important because there is this tendency to think that what, whenever something is digital and it happens in the digital world, that it's automatically sort of unprecedented and novel. But I believe that, you know, if we study history and social science theory, then we find that similar things in many cases have happened before uh, and why it's important to see that is that then the way in which events have played out in the past can they don't determine the future but they can they can help us make make sense 
of possible ways in which things might turn out in the present. I mean, this is what social science theory is really. It's generalizing from the past to try to make some statements about the present or predictions about the future. And so if we assume that everything in the digital world is so new that it's not even worth trying to find analogies in the past, we kind of lose that power, I think, in some ways. Symptomatic of this is coming up with new words for, for everything that happens online, instead of looking for words that in the past were used to describe uh, something similar. Now, of course, a lot of things that happen online um, do seem different from what we're used to. And, uh, you know, things like I'm, this is, I'm not yet getting to Bitcoin yet, but if we think, for instance, about um, social media, likes on social media or on eBay, the reputation system that emerged on eBay, um, where you could leave a, a rating after you complete a transaction with somebody and then other people will look at those ratings and, and decide upon a person's trustworthiness on that basis. Um, those are not something that we're sort of used to in our aware used to in our everyday lives before reputation systems became popular on the internet. But if we look just a little bit further back in history, we can see that in, for instance, in medieval times, merchants relied very much on uh, their reputations to do business. And it's only once we move from uh, in Europe, from the medieval era to modernity, that, uh, well, reputation is still important, but the modern institutions, the state and courts and banks and other sorts of institutions um, step in and allow us to do business, even with strangers. Stranger means somebody whose reputation we actually know nothing about. But because we can be assured that if there is a legal contract and the state provides us with some safety, we can even do business with strangers. And so in the internet, we have a sort of slightly long-winded answer, but the, my point is that on the internet, we may have things that are unfamiliar from our everyday experience in modern society, but that may in fact be very familiar um, to, in terms of experiences that people had in a pre-modern uh, society. And if we then look at the kinds of patterns of behavior and also problems and solutions that emerged around these experiences in pre-modern economies, then that may also give us some ideas about where the internet economy is headed. So now as to, you know, you brought up, there's a chapter on Bitcoin and the idea that, the idea of the, the chapter is, the question it addresses is, well, if we have now these um, large unaccountable companies in charge of the digital economy, couldn't we, with which I obviously term cloud empires, as in the title of the book, couldn't we replace them 
with technology so that we wouldn't have to rely on the goodwill of the managers and CEOs and owners of these companies and hope that they trust them not to abuse their powerful position. But couldn't we instead replace them with cryptographic trustlessness? The idea that um, if you sign a contract, then uh, the technology will automatically and inevitably ensure that uh, uh, the contract will be fulfilled as written. And there's no possibility of the company that owns the platform in intervening or no need for us to ask for their intervention. And uh, this sort of core promise of so-called cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain technologies, this is the sort of marketing um, pitch of these technologies, this trustlessness. It seems very unfamiliar to us from our everyday lives. So a lot of people find it uh, very surprising, but also compelling. And so in this case too, um, I felt that it was useful to go back in history to a time where we can in fact find something somewhat analogous. And I have to say where this comes from partly is, you know, I'm not an uh, expert on uh, ancient Greece. I, I mean, I read history as, and I read economic history, but where the ancient Greek, why did I choose an analogy from ancient Greece, from ancient Athens? Uh, the reason is that uh, in Oxford, I'm member of Jesus College. Uh, the Oxford is consists of, is it 39 now? 39 different colleges with historical, often Christian names like Jesus College. And in the college, I often dine with other fellows from different disciplines. So I'm an economic sociologist, but I often dine with political scientists or mathematicians and sometimes our resident uh, classicist who happens to be an expert on, not only uh, does he happen to be an expert on ancient Athens, he's also interested in Bitcoin. <laughs> so, so I've had conversations with him that um, touch on both both of these subjects, and that's sort of where the inspiration came from. And in fact, uh, you know, he was kind enough to read my manuscript and assure me that I didn't commit any uh, major historical errors. Uh, and he sort of gave his seal of approval for my analogy. So, what is this analogy I'm talking about? Um, in in, 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 in ancient Athens, something around 400 BC, perhaps you remember better, there was a, indeed a, a peasant revolt, which um, Aristotle in his work titled The Constitution of Athens sort of describes in, in uh, well, in, the, the, in terms that reflect how history was written at that time. So it's not a modern scholarly treatment of the subject, but it's sort of also partly an allegory. And what he writes, what uh, Aristotle writes in the Athenian constitution 
is that um, the essentially the government officials of Athens at that time were 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 corrupted by this oligarchy uh, that that controlled the the state, and therefore ordinary people could not trust and did not find did not uh, did not find um, when they were being oppressed they did not find relief from government and they couldn't trust the government officials and there a civil war ensued and so on and um, then the the situation was resolved by a, a poet and statesman called Solon according to Aristotle who devised a new form of government for Athens and instead of trying to make the government officials more trustworthy in his scheme he tried to make trustworthiness matter less so he proposed a machine called cleroterion the allotment machine which would rotate government responsibilities randomly between citizens judges were reappointed every morning randomly and uh, each case was heard by a number of of these random judges who acted as check acted as checks um, upon each other and this way no individual in the government wielded enough influence to actually abuse their position but together they still held and wielded the, the power of the government so they could enforce contracts and they could do all those good things that government does but they didn't have the possibility of abusing their power so how does this relate to bitcoin well the same satoshi nakamoto the pseudonymous creator of bitcoin he was a bit like solon in in the sense that you know he was um at the time of the the great financial crisis 2007 and 2008 he was observing how um, government officials were ineffective in in regulating and curbing the abuses of the financial sector the the companies that had missold uh, financial products to people that were now lots of people losing their savings, losing their homes and, and even their jobs. And um, many people were demanding accountability and greater trustworthiness from government and, and banks. But he instead set out to design a system in which trustworthiness wouldn't matter, uh, aka the blockchain. And so the objectives are on a certain level the same. And so is the operating mechanism. So where Solon's uh, Athenian machine, the Cleroterion, appointed government officials or judges every morning, um, you'll have to re read the book for details of how exactly that happens. It's a bit convoluted. I shall go into it now. Um, Satoshi Nakamoto's machine the the blockchain or more specifically his so-called proof of work algorithm appointed uh, a sort of official every 10 minutes 
to check the past 10 minutes worth of transactions in um, in in this new financial system that he was creating so that and and none of because the responsibility for checking the transactions was rotating so rapidly no individual checker or administrator would wield enough power to actually abuse their position but together the network was as strong as a bank and could fill, fulfill some similar uh, functions namely moving um, account balances or so moving balances from one account to the other and preventing anyone from uh, creating balances out of thin air but uh, towards the end of the chapter you also identify or allude to some of the shortcomings that are there That's with right. bitcoin and this system and uh, you 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 say that perhaps uh, uh, it's incorrect to say that we can achieve true objectivity neutrality and privacy using bitcoin am i correct That's in right. saying that That's right so there is a, a despite these similarities that i've just talked about there is a crucial way in which solon's system of government for athens and nakamoto's uh, system for governing this new financial system differ and this difference helps to explain um, why nakamoto's system ultimately fails in its objectives and um, the long story short the difference is in how the rules are being made for the system so in both both solon and nakamoto they designed a system that enforces rules right it enforces uh, contracts account balances um ensures that uh things are being executed uh, rules are being executed faithfully and government administrators cannot bend the rules but um where do those rules come from solon also designed democratic institutions for making rules right citizen assemblies and various other means through which athenian citizens could together decide on what those rules should be that the judges apply right nakamoto did no such thing he focused only on making the um, administration of the rules trustless but he didn't pay any attention to well where did those rules come from and the fact is the rules are still being made by humans they're ma- being made by software developers uh, who develop and maintain the bitcoin protocol and today now in the case of other cryptocurrencies and blockchain systems and DAOs and and distributed autonomous organizations and other sort of blockchain applications somebody is writing all of that code and the in many ways the the people who write the the program code they are like the people who wrote legal code in in the past but unlike the people who wrote legal code in Athens the people who write program code in in the crypto world are not 
appointed or elected by the people. They're not complete autocrats. There's various kinds of interdependencies. There's other powerful entities in, in the the political uh, politics of Bitcoin. There are these so-called mining companies and exchanges uh, where people buy and sell Bitcoin for real money are very, very uh, powerful. Um, uh, so-called stable coins. There's a whole sort of economy and political economy, which is too complicated uh, to go into in, in detail and it's too complicated. In fact, in, and, and, and here's the point, it's, it's opaque. It's too complicated and opaque even for me to properly get my head around, let alone for a crypto citizen to understand what is going on and who is actually in power, who is making the rules that the network is enforcing. And so for this reason, I, I say in the book that uh, Nakamoto attempted to deal with uh, autocracy. You know, his, the problem was autocracy. And he attempted to deal with autocracy without democracy. And as a result, he ended up creating a cryptocracy, which is a neologism, which means uh, crypto hidden, uh, unknown, crazy rules, a rule by the unknown, hidden rule. We don't know who is in charge. Somebody is still in charge. He didn't succeed in eliminating. Remember, the original problem is we've got these powerful uh, companies and, and unaccountable uh, government officials in charge. Couldn't we make them obsolete with technology? And the answer is no, we couldn't because technology helped us in making the administration, the application, the enforcement of the rules more uh, predictable and trustless. But what it could not do for us is make those rules for us. Humans are still needed to make those rules. And uh, if you don't know who's making the rules, then, well, you're not, the rule, rule makers are not accountable to you. And uh, the the practical upshot of this is that we see in the crypto world, in the, the, the whole crypto world is just this uh, succession of large frauds uh, and, and, and boom and bust cycles, which have the concrete effect of uh, over the past 12 years that I've been following the space, the most concrete effect that it has had on the world is to move money. And I'm not talking about any coin, but actual uh, euros, uh, pounds and, and, and dollars and, and yen um, and one and, and, and RMB from a large number of people, often not the wealthiest people, often uh, the very same people who lost money in the financial crisis and we're hoping uh, that this would could change their fortunes, moving money away from them into the pockets of a smaller number of people, of uh, early adopters, insiders, uh, owners of the exchanges, the stable coins, uh, the mining companies. And uh, every now and then a massive uh, fraud, a scam, 
is uncovered like the FTX exchange, which was a right. total total sham and, and took customer deposits and, and, and moved them elsewhere. But by the time these things are discovered, the money is long since offshored to, to some uh, tax haven. And uh, just as happened in the financial crisis, the actual perpetrators go largely unpunished and many people lose their savings all over again. So for, in this way, I say that Satoshi Nakamoto failed. Despite Bitcoin becoming very popular, uh, it actually completely failed in its original aim, which, which was to, to stop exactly this sort of thing from happening. At this point, uh, uh, help us to understand the real power and control that today's cloud empires have. Uh, give us the true sense of power that these uh, large companies have. Mm. Uh, well, where to start? I mean, if you think, first of all, think about the scale. Amazon last year, uh, just Amazon Marketplace, one of their many different products. Amazon Marketplace, um, more five hundred, over five hundred billion US dollars worth of goods passed through that marketplace last year, and that's much bigger than most countries' GDP. Um, Amazon earned. Um, more money from taxing, quote unquote, the merchants who use the marketplace than most governments in the world earn in tax revenues. So simply in terms of its economic scale, Amazon and these other cloud empires too are comparable. They're not the same as nation states, but they're, they're, they're sort of on a parallel level to nation states. And I think uh, few people deny that the CEOs of these companies now are by many measures more powerful than most heads of state. Heads of state have to um, uh, appeal to, to Mark Zuckerberg to get a meeting with him and not the other way around, most, most heads of state. So they're they're very very large and powerful. And in concrete terms, what does their power uh, consist of? Well, you know, a lot of people write about social media and the way in which social media platforms, since they host so much speech today, uh, it's how people discover news. It's how political debate is carried out around the world today. Then, of course, the position they have in regulating that speech. Now, Mr. Musk owning uh, Twitter has a very hands-on approach to running the company. So he has very influential deciding uh, what kinds of speech uh, uh, takes place there um, and, and what kinds of speech is, yeah, not also by not policing certain kinds of speech is actually possible to suppress uh, voices because it's impossible to have a uh, informed uh, rational debate in an environment uh, in in an environment where other people are just seeking to disrupt the conversation but but that's not what my book is mostly about my book is about the economic power of platforms and uh, in economic terms um, remember I told you that the used and marketplace 
disintegrated. And it disintegrated as it grew because that those informal social norms that so wonderfully uh, ensured cooperation and uh, solved the problem of exchange in small internet early electronic communities in which people knew each other and traded repeatedly with the same people, those social norms could no longer guarantee integrity as the internet grew. And this is the same phenomenon that we see if you if in a, uh, a small rural community, people know each other and they may trust each other. But once that rural community grows into uh, a, a town and then into a mega city, then most people, in fact, that pass by each other on the street are strangers to each other. And there is a bit of a bystander effect and, and, and so on, where people, in fact, don't feel so much of a bond um, towards each towards each other anymore and instead they rely on government and formal institutions and the police to maintain peace and cooperation so um the same thing kind of happened on the internet so the usenet as as the internet the commercial internet boom started hundreds of millions of people joined the internet these uh, uh the usenet marketplace and similar um communities where exchange was based on informal norms, they disintegrated. They were overwhelmed by scammers and spam and, and people became less trusting of strangers and corporations sort of died down and the market exchange stopped. Um, but then eBay and Amazon and others showed up and they set up these walled gardens where they said, you know, come within our walls. We will, just like governments do, we will uh we will put you into our records. We will give you an ID. Uh, we will track you. We will monitor you. Uh, but we will also, to an extent, guarantee your safety or protect you from scam and, and cybercrime. And so you can do business within our walls with the relative uh, security. And uh, consumers came and merchants came and they saw it was safe and these markets grew and, and, and they multiplied in size and, and the, the digital economy grew uh, many fold into the huge size that we know uh, it has today. And uh, so it, it, it wasn't, you know, I was earlier asking why was this original promise of the internet betrayed? And in my analysis, ultimately, as much as we like to think that these uh, founders of these uh, mega uh, empires, uh, cloud empires, stole their way into power and somehow betrayed us. In fact, they, they didn't. They founded the cities that people flocked into. They rose into power by, by founding uh, the marketplaces and the platforms the people then found uh, in which people found safety from the um, from the anarchy of the unincorporated internet and in practice so you asked uh, what does their power consist of um, it is as mentioned it is uh, monitoring and, and, and sanctioning people um, uh, it is adjudicating disputes. So I, I calculated in my book that digital platforms today resolve more disputes in a year than all of the world's public courts put together. So if you have 
a problem in an e-commerce transaction. It's very rare that you try to take the seller to a small claims court. Probably they're in a different country. It would be very, very, if not impossible, very, very difficult and costly. Instead, you complain to the platform. And the platform employs virtual judges, quote unquote, um, representatives who will investigate the matter. They will adjudicate. They will make a decision as to who is right, who is wrong. They will offer restitution of some sort, possibly to the grieved party, and they will sanction the offender. And how do they sanction the offender? I mean, after all, it's just the internet. It's not like they can put you in, in jail. But first of all, uh, they can the sort of capital punishment that they can meet out is to banish you from the platform. And insofar as these platforms have now become the main methods through which many types of commerce and, and interaction are carried out, being excluded from the platform can in fact be a very substantial penalty. Um, lesser punishments include if you have often, especially the merchants and, and other people who do business online, they will have some kinds of funds um, deposited um, in these platforms awaiting to be paid out. And so those funds can be frozen. Um, and they can also selectively and partially freeze, uh, freeze merchants uh, or, or gig workers or online freelancers or streamers or all these people who app developers who make money online, they can, they can economically sanction their activities. And so their power consists of, of very similar things as the government power, which is sanctioning with fines, essentially, um, and as well as threatening with the capital punishment. And you gave a very interesting example that uh, Spotify, that was perhaps number one uh, music application yes. on one of the app stores. Uh, but uh, when the owner of the app store uh, decided to launch their own app, yes. so Spotify was not number one, two, three, four, perhaps it was number 23. That's correct. So the platform companies can use this power that they have for good. They can use it to enforce contracts, to regulate markets, to enable this wonderful internet economy. But they can also use it for selfish ends, and they do. So this example that you brought up is it's from Apple App Store. So Spotify, a, a music app, Swedish music app, was for many years the number one search result uh, because it was the most popular uh, uh, music app on, on, on Apple App Store. So it was the number one search result in, in when you searched on Apple App Store for music. But then the day after Apple introduced a competing music app, Apple Music, suddenly Spotify <laughs> was no longer number one. It wasn't number two. It wasn't number three. It was number 23. So Apple had abused its government-like power over the marketplace to essentially disappear a competitor. And so this is why, even though we understand now where, why these cloud empires rose to power, we understand that they provided the same kind of safety and surety and, 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 and rules that government provides to 
to enable business and, and solve the problem of exchange. They did the same thing, but on the internet. And we understand where they came from, but that doesn't mean that we should think that we should be content with the situation now. Because they are still, after all, they are uh, they are autocratic. They are not democratic. They are not accountable to their users any more than um, an autocratic government is uh, accountable to its people. Now, of course, um, you may say, well, can't people just vote with their feet and leave the platform? And sure, that is something they they must take into account. But uh, insofar as these markets are characterized by network effects, um, winner-takes-all dynamics, there usually isn't, uh, there aren't too many options uh, where to go. And um, moving from to a different platform is also not something you can do alone if you wish to continue interacting and, and doing business with the people you you are used to interacting with it's a decision that the collective has to make as a whole and insofar as we i mean that that's what the second part of my book is as you know is about the political institutions of the platform economy and rather the lack of them but political institutions are collective are, are, are how we make collective decisions in a society. We vote, for instance, what the direction of the society should be, how the rules should be made, or who should be in charge. Um, but insofar as the internet economy lacks any such political institutions, uh, the individuals are um, at the mercy of the platform princes. This nicely brings us to my next question. You discuss a very interesting example. Every country, every state has uh, has a right to protect itself, to protect its citizens. And that is why independent countries maintain their armies uh, and, and keep these weapons. Can we say that these cloud empires have become so strong that to protect their users, they may consider uh, using extreme measures, uh, even violence, as states do to protect their citizens? That's, a, that's an interesting question. So, of course, if if we understand as violence uh, use of physical force, then for the most part, platform companies don't have the capacity for that. Although not, that is not quite as black and white because they're, they are increasingly sensors, as you know, sensors and actuators are being embedded into everyday environments. And, and, and we have devices at home, uh, Amazon Alexa and, and uh, Google Echo and Siri and so on. And we have cars which can be uh, remotely engaged and disengaged and so on. And I even saw a motorcycle um, safety uh, harness that inflates upon impact like an airbag, except that if you stop paying the monthly subscription fee, then it stops inflating and it may in fact kill you. 
<laughs> so it's not the case that cloud <laughs> empires are entirely without the ability to inflict uh, physical violence. But um, I would argue that nowadays um, the them having our virtual body, our virtual identity, uh, our reputation, our ability to continue our interactions and our business uh, in their hands. And the, the fact that they can do violence to that is in many ways very, I hesitate to say more consequential, but, but very, very consequential also. Um, and they can, they, can, they can use that power to sanction those who are within their uh, walls. But you were referring to protecting from external parties. And um, here, it's indeed the case that uh, the governments, including cloud empires, uh, they want to have the exclusive right <laughs> to, to abuse you. They don't want to let anyone external do that so they will try to protect you from external threats um and uh, these cloud empires google for instance very very important in protecting internet users today from cybercrime. so we don't actually uh we don't see like much law enforcement that happens in the real world we don't actually see much of it um, but google is actually doing a lot to protect ordinary internet users from falling victim to to malware to and to scams um, by by flagging and detecting such websites and and preventing essentially the browser from ending up on such sites um, likewise for apple uh, and so they are protecting uh, like the government protect would protect people from bandits in the same way um, the cloud empires are doing it but where it gets interesting is obviously then when they try to protect uh, their uh, protect quote unquote their people from other cloud empires as well as from governments, right? Um, Apple has just announced that they will implement end-to-end -end encryption in their cloud service iCloud, in which Apple user data is stored, and. Uh, what this means so icloud has to apple says that to their knowledge icloud has never been penetrated by hackers so this is not increasing the encryption there encrypting it is not about preventing uh not does not appear to be a, a measure against uh, hackers and scammers and extortionists instead apple gets every year thousands of requests from government law enforcement agents to access data of suspects uh, in iCloud. And by creating this end-to-end -end encryption, it in fact uh, makes it impossible for government law enforcement to access this data. Um, so it is protecting its users, it is protecting its cloud empires, uh, its cloud empire from uh, and, and, and building this perimeter around its cloud that keeps government law enforcement agents out. Um, and then, you know, how do we feel about that? Well, it depends on how we feel about government. And I suppose in an authoritarian state, the um, 
users will be very happy about this. But now, let's say if you live in a democratic in a democratic country and you think that the law enforcement uh, with uh, proper authorization authorization from a court, in fact, should have access to data that could help solve a serious crime. Then obviously, uh, you may not view this in a positive light. And certainly, uh, government spy agencies that are tr that are trying to use this sort of data to what they at least they think of as national security needs they think that it in fact undermines national security so by protecting their own cloud security they may at the same time be undermining uh, national security and vice versa attempts to protect the national security the, a particular piece of territory may end up undermining cloud security because it, it necessitates making holes into the encryption walls uh, of the service. So there is this bit of a, if not outright warfare, at least this constant border skirmishing going on, not just between the different cloud empires, which are attempting to win over territory from each other, but also between territorial nation states and cloud empires. The reason I use this term violence is that uh, I believe that you shared a story in one of your presentations where there was a, a, a large company and there was a threat that their users' data will be released and oh, yes. the owner of the companies actually thought about using violence to eliminate that threat. Am I correct in saying yes, that? Yes, yes. So, no, this is in fact from, this is from chapter four. Uh, of the book, which actually gets very violent. <laughs> and uh, and uh, this is the story of a darknet drug marketplace, which is owned by um, somebody called Dread Pirate Roberts. This is a pseudonym. And Dread Pirate Roberts is running this uh, marketplace, his own little kingdom, outside the grasp of state institutions and law enforcement on the darknet uh, behind encryptions. And, um, but then, you know, one day uh, somebody, uh, a, 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 a drug merchant who's been doing business on this platform contacts him and says, look, through my dealings on your, on your platform, I have accumulated um, a database of, the the addresses of thousands of your users and if you do not pay me uh, i believe it was half a million dollars in bitcoin then i will release uh, these addresses and that will undermine trust in your platform and that will be the end of the road for your little virtual kingdom and uh in this situation, so what did that, that uh, Dread Pirate Roberts do? He uh, thought if, you know, if he pays the extortionist, then, you know, that's just an invitation to extort more. Um, he could banish the extortionist from his platform, which I earlier, I called that a virtual capital punishment. But obviously that doesn't really do very much uh, here because, uh, you know, he could ex exclude it from his own little virtual kingdom, but the extortionist could still release the information elsewhere. And so, in fact, he seemed to be completely powerless in the virtual domain against this sort of crime. 
And so he then resolved to go outside the platform into the real world, find the identity of this person and have them killed by a contract killer. Um, now, just to, to not to reveal the interesting twists and turns in the way he didn't, he didn't, he didn't quite succeed in it in the end. I mean, he ordered, in the end, he ordered several killings, but it's not actually clear that he ever managed to uh, take the extortionists alive. Um, but this, basically what this shows, what this demonstrates is that uh, uh, th there are types of crime and, and types of threats that the cloud empires still depend on uh, physical coercion to to address and because this particular little kingdom was a drug marketplace an illicit drug marketplace uh, they could not rely on government on on state authorities to provide that coercion but in other cases um uh, in, 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 you know, in cases where, let's say, Amazon's activities are being threatened, uh, Amazon will call upon the services of national, of earthly territorial authorities. Um, so it, it kind of goes both ways. And then like, likewise, then the territorial authorities will call upon assistance from cloud empires when they need data. But I wonder now, you know, against the background of what we just discussed, if Apple is in this way saying we will no longer uh, cooperate with national law enforcement agents in helping their investigations, then what if next time Apple needs uh, a physical muscle to deal with uh, a security problem, uh, somebody, for instance, trying to extort them? Well, then the, the, the law enforcement agent will say, sorry, we're not helping you anymore. <laughs> because <laughs> you're not helping us you know probably they they won't be True. legally allowed to say that but you know there might be come a point where where in fact uh, both parties must realize that they are in symbiosis together and they cannot uh, they cannot part ways unless the cloud empires start developing their own physical muscle so there is another story in chapter 12 of my book in which the ceo of ebay gets frustrated with an anonymous critic who is spreading uh, who is spreading uh, uh, very uh, uh, well uh, um, critical stories about the company and also touching upon him personally and uh, what ends up happening is that some eBay employees actually start stalking this person in real life uh, and and threats of violence are being made in an attempt to silence them. And this mm -hmm. story ends with actual national law enforcement uh, uh, officers uh, stopping it and mm -hmm. grabbing the eBay employees who were threatening this critic, this online critic physically. But it makes you wonder, this case came to light because it was unsuccessful, but is it the only one of its kind?
our cloud empires applying this sort of muscle in the physical world also and we just don't learn about it most of the time well this nicely brings us to my next question uh, let us discuss now the people the labor that works in these cloud empires and their rights uh, are their rights protected are there laws and regulations that protect their rights because these empires are located across the globe in many countries in different jurisdictions and particularly in the context of twitter that we are seeing so how these cloud empires are treating the people that work for them well first i think it's useful to distinguish between two classes of people in a cloud empire one is the empire's administrators so the people who are employed by the platform company to manage its servers to develop its software to run its operations and so on the, the employees of the company as well as the immediate contractors of the company and these are analogous to government administrators or imperial administrators um in in an earthly nation and then second we have the more like the population of the empire so people who used the service especially people who used the service to make a living or dependent on it to make a living um the app developers the merchants the streamers the influencers um on on twitter uh, a very important interest group are also advertisers who spend money on the platform advertisers spend money on the platform but they also depend on it um for uh, sales for their products and um in terms of how these people are treated for over 20 years tech companies were enjoying well for pretty much pretty much approximately uh, exactly 20 years since the last dot com bubble burst in around 2001 um tech companies have offered very good jobs for those who have been able to get them um by the standards of the kinds of jobs that most people in the world do the imperial administrators have been treated well and indeed it is important for the imperial rulers to treat their administrators well so as to win their loyalty and assure that they carry out their instructions faithfully and instead to when when um the platform princes have attempted to squeeze out profits from their realms that has mostly happened uh, at the expense not of their workers not of their administrators but at the expense of the users and especially the small businesses and the self-employed people who make their living on the platform so this means gig workers uh, delivery drivers uh this means amazon merchants independent merchants who have seen their fees go up and their most successful products being copied uh by amazon and then the product lines being blatantly taken over by amazon and amazon's 
copies starting to show up in search results before the original product. Um, this has meant Apple, as we discussed earlier, Apple taking over uh, businesses from uh, independent app developers. We discussed Spotify, but that's one of many cases where Apple has launched a competing product for an app that was previously provided by um, an independent uh, app developer and uh, then effectively driving out the original uh, from the market and uh, and so on and so on so these two classes of people the imperial subjects and the imperial administrators to use that analogy are have been treated quite differently but then two things have happened i think uh, one is that well the tech companies have had a tough year they're they overextended during the pandemic um they also made their their um uh, leaders like Mark Zuckerberg thought to be infallible have appeared, appeared to have made some mistakes. Um, same with uh, Mr. Musk. And who is paying for it? Well, the administrators in form in the form of job cuts to achieve uh, uh, greater uh, financial sustainability. Um, the other thing that happened already. In fact, before this latest round of job cuts, that has then led to greater tension between the workers and the uh, management, or to continue the analogy between the, the princes and the, the administrators. Already before that, we had these so-called tech walkouts. We had walk, we had employees walk out from major tech firms like Google, Amazon, um, and Apple as well, if I remember correctly to protest various things about corporate policy, uh, such as uh, um, gender equity and, and uh, uh, use of uh, sales of, of, of technology to authoritarian states, but also uh, employment conditions and the treatment of contractors, which to some extent then begins to align with the message and the interests of those imperial subjects that I was talking about. And indeed, historically, uh, if we look at, I mean, th things have happened in many ways in different places and times, but we, you know, we do see in the sort of 19th century, uh, 18th, 18th, 19th century in Europe, uh, the, the growing ad ranks of administrators uh, employed by the newly newly invented nation states, in fact, joined cause with the the middle of in many cases the middle class um, of the the country to criticize and oppose autocratic policies by their princes and to demand greater accountability. So government, the government workforce being a very educated one can sometimes be an agent uh, for demanding uh, accountability. And that now appears to some extent also be playing out in these tech empires. The subtitle of your book is How Digital Platforms Are Overtaking the State and How We Can Regain Control. My question is, why should we try to take the control back? What is the reason for that? And then obviously there is then 
part B of this question yes. that how can we do this? Well, um, it's important to note here that when I say how can we regain control, by we, I'm not referring necessarily to nation states, to territorial uh, countries and, and governments. I mean, we, the people, uh, in the sense of the uh, American uh, Independence Declaration. Um, we, the people, can, should, can, and in my opinion, should take back control um, for the reasons we've discussed, which is that like any autocrat throughout history, when enough power is, is accumulated in uh, too few hands, those few hands are liable to abuse it to their own advantage. And also, even autocrats that have the best intentions and that do not wish to abuse their power um, are liable to make mistakes. Um, autocracy is can be an effective form of government during wartime. The ancient Romans knew this. They elected a dictator for wartime because decisive uh, action is needed and, and speed of decision-making during wartime. But during times of peace, integrating information and views from multiple sources can be more valuable so as to uh, make considered decisions and avoid mistakes. And arguably, for instance, Mark Zuckerberg did a great job in scaling up uh, Facebook against competition from other social networking sites and beating them in the battle for for the market. But now that he is a peacetime leader, uh, leading a stable, uh, quite mature company that isn't growing quite as fast anymore, he's made a huge, huge bet uh, on a personal um, sort of pet project over his that now threatens to bring down his entire empire. And had he extended uh, decision-making to a broader circle of people and had a more inclusive democratic, uh, if not democratic, at least more inclusive uh, structure rule than he has, he may have avoided this, this misadventure. But so, so these are the reasons why we should do it. Uh, it's uh, to help prevent abuse of power but also ultimately to secure the prosperity of these domains for everyone. Then as to how to do it, well, that's uh, a, a very long discussion, but um, basically, again, to draw on a historical analogy, of course, historically what happened was that the art in medieval Europe, the artisans and merchants in medieval market towns who grew prosperous from the, in the growing economy, they started to demand a greater say for themselves in how that market town was being run. They started to demand guarantees from the local feudal lord um, not to, not to uh, interfere in their business and uh, uh, to, to, uh, to essentially stay out. And uh, ultimately, this resulted in the rise of autonomous city-states, uh, which, um, which were ruled by the burghers, by, by the, uh, the, the merchants and artisans who made their living there. And uh, 
And often this this took sometimes this took place very gradually over a long period of time. Uh, it involved the bribery. It involved the pressure. It involved the publicity campaigns. It involved the burghers allying with powerful uh, interests such as the church or another monarch or something like that. But ultimately, they did win. First participation in the administration of the city, and then eventually, not in all cases, but in many cases, uh, complete autonomy. Um, and sometimes it happened more radically. It was sparked by an ac acute injustice. The feudal lord attempted to dispossess the merchants, so they rose into open rebellion, for instance. And so that's the historical way in which democracy uh, got started um, in medieval Europe. Then, of course, in the 18th and 19th centuries, the labor movement becomes important in extending those democratic rights from the property-owning middle class to the entire society. And we have the birth of universal franchise. Um, but in my assessment, in the digital economy, we are still in the dark ages. We're not still <laughs> quite in the 18th and 19th century. So, um, so where should we, where should we be then looking for in the digital? Well, we should be looking at those digital burgers uh, of, of the present era. What are they doing? And we can see that they are realizing that in fact, uh, any moment their, their livelihood and wealth could be taken away by the platform company announcing a change in the rules of the marketplace that makes their business, the business that they've been making their living off of suddenly makes it uh, illegal. And so they are starting to organize. And in some cases, they are starting to openly rebel. So just this April, we had 30,000 uh, independent sellers on the e-commerce marketplace Etsy uh, go on strike to protest against uh, ri ri rising fees, rising taxes. And the strike was unsuccessful in convincing the owners of the platform to reverse the, the, the tax hike. But it was successful in, in fact, bringing these merchants together and they formed an organization which they call the Indie Sellers Guild. And they say that the purpose of the guild is to build momentum and to start to create an effective counterbalance to the power of the platform owners, much as the medieval guilds of merchants and artisans began to form a counterbalance to the, to the power of the feudal lords. So this is where I think that how we uh, can regain control comes in people and especially the people who make their living on these platforms organizing and starting to demand uh, first of all to be heard to be consulted and how the platform is being run and then uh, ultimately uh, to have a say to have formal uh, seat in the table in how the platforms are being run and now this democratization in the in the, the real world it took hundreds of years but so far in, on the internet, we've seen that everything appears to be running uh, at a manifold, perhaps a hundredfold speed. So who knows, perhaps we shall see uh, such developments play out sooner rather than later. 
Willie, we are discussing your book, Cloud Empires, how digital platforms are overtaking the state and how we can regain control. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book. Obviously, there is much more in the book. However, is there anything else that you think we should touch upon before we close this discussion? Well, no, it's been a wonderful discussion, Musim, and uh, I think we've covered so much ground. There's not much to add. The only thing I would say, I was maybe add to listeners, is that um, we put quite a lot of effort into designing the cover uh, of the book. So uh, I worked with a with a U.S. designer called uh, Alex Camlin uh, on the cover, and we uh, we hid some Easter eggs and some hints about the, the, the contents of the story of the book into this coat of arms that you see uh, on the cover. Some of it more obvious, some of it less obvious. So I would invite any readers to study the cover and, you know, tell me uh, what you see and what you discover in it, because I think there's still some uh, symbols in it, which, as far as I know, uh, no one has, has, has yet been able to uncover. That's fantastic. And that's a very interesting and intriguing uh, invitation. Professor Willie Lidon Werta, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was wonderful to chat with you. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.